Warm welcome to all of you to Intersections. It has been a while since we've been together. Part of it has been just the exigencies of my own life with uh, the work going on at Columbia and beyond. And uh, part of it was we were waiting for that ideal moment with just the right guest. And I cannot feel more joyful than I am already with the opportunity we have today. At a time when, in some ways, the whole world with the virus, with the political and other developments that are happening around the globe. But in particular, of course, the United States of America, with an election that has just happened recently, at a time when the world and the nation is um, facing, facing a huge burden, a burden of uh, how to bring people together, a burden of how we can aspire to bring humanity to its fullest potential, a burden for how to cope with um, situations where life or the environment or the world around you goes or doesn't go in the direction you wanted it to. And even from this vantage point, I can't think of a guest whose accomplishments and record in the world with all that he has done couldn't be bearing a testament, providing insight and inspiration to us at a time like this to step into our leadership, to our life with this frame of how to create a winning path forward for ourselves and for humanity. As we move forward, I want to just take a minute to just introduce our guest to you. So just bear with me as I do that. Uh, Apollo Ono is the most decorated Winter Olympian in America's history, eight-time medalist in short track speed skating at the Winter Olympics, inducted into the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame. He has gone on to write uh, a couple of books to profile his insights, his thoughts, his stories. And he's working now on his third one, which we will be looking forward to hearing from him on in the next few minutes. He has also gone on speaking tours to talk to executive audiences on all kinds of insights and just uh, extensions that he's making between what he has learned from being a world champion to what we can all learn in our pursuits. He has been an ambassador for the sports community as well in many regards. And more recently has participated in an HBO documentary, a very soul-searching look at the future of people who peak really early in their careers in sports. We're going to talk to him about that at some point in this conversation. And has also extended his reign into one of the most popular shows on American television, Dancing with the Stars, where he's featured and has won a season on that show. All right. So without further ado, let me warmly welcome in our midst, uh, Apollo Ono. Hi, Tendra. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me today. I am great and uh, also feeling just incredible appreciation and gratitude, yeah, for having you with us as well, Apollo. I, I don't know if you've been tracking the chat, but you're seeing folks, you know, call in from everywhere, from London to San Diego to um, Toronto to Hoboken here, close to my neighborhood in New, Jersey, uh, in, uh, New York. So. so it's a great, great, great joy to have you with us. You have led such a storied life in such a relatively compact journey that you made so far in, in the few decades that you had under your belt. Uh, and there's so much richness to talking, you know, through various parts of it. What do you think about me starting at the, at the very beginning? In, in particular, you know, you became a national and ultimately a world champion at such a young age. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what is it in your roots that when you look back, you feel were the most formative pillars that got you catapulted into that place that so few of us have ventured into? Well, I, I think first and foremost, you know, growing up in a single parent household, 
uh, I grew up in the Seattle region in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And my father coming to the United States as a Japanese immigrant, not knowing how to speak a word of English, not having a single dollar to his name, and essentially seeking the American dream of trying to figure out what is going to be possible for him to survive in this country. And that kind of hard work and discipline and immigrant mentality, my dad was very early on, you know, in my early uh, years was adamant about kind of philosophically always providing to me a series of questions versus always answers whenever I would ask him something. So for example, you know, I'd ask him a simple question about why is the world like this? Or why does this person do that? And he never would give me the answer. He instead would prompt another question of myself to then ask myself if I could find the answer in some capacity. And you combine that with the fact that I had this enormous amount of energy as a young kid. Sports was a natural outlet for my father to place me into the after school activities because he didn't want me to basically get into mischievousness after school. And so he would really kind of align my schedule uh, to try to wear me out by the time I got home that I wouldn't be able to kind of keep him up at night because it was a single parent household and my father worked all of the time. And so, you know, I stumbled upon this sport of short track speed skating at a, at a fairly young age. You know, at the age of 14, I had moved from Seattle to upstate New York in Lake Placid to train and be a part of the Junior Development Olympic training program. And it was there that I learned about structure, about teamwork, about mentorship through my coach, and also about my own passion and drive for the sport. But all of it was really fundamentally, it started from my father and kind of his always planting in my brain, Apollo, anything that you desire, you can achieve in some level, in some capacity. So, you know, he was always very, very strongly making these statements around no glass ceiling. You're going to break through these things. There's no limitations to how you live your life. And your mind is you're still the most incredible asset that you have. In ways, you know, as a, as a child, uh, you know, he, he would say certain things to me. He would never, he was always, you know, my father would always kind of give me praise for the work and the effort that I gave versus the result. And I didn't know that at the time, but what he was doing was curating a way of thinking to focus on process much more on, than the prize. And while we have the target and the bullseye, which is ever so important to remain focused on because we use that metric and we use that target to propel ourselves, simply focusing on the target is not is not enough and you know that reverse engineering and that process of what the olympic cycle will look like 4 years from today is really hard to do that's forecasting 4 years of your life in advance and and um that was the one of the beauties and one of the lessons that i learned throughout the olympic path but it started with my father wow you know folks listen sometimes i close to the end of the program distill the essence the key lessons what we can all take away into our lives in my kind of role as you know as like the professor guy uh, but here in this case, I think the conversation with you is going to be so rich uh, and laden with insights that I don't think by the end I'll be able to play catch up to all of that. So I'm just going to take this moment, you know, with your permission, Apollo, to just kind of distill a few of the key lessons you've already taught us right here in the journey that you had with your father. You mentioned first, for example, how rather than give you answers to your questions, he actually answered them with questions for you to draw things out from yourself. Mm. What a beautiful act and a lesson, not just for how we raise our children, but also how we perhaps coach, how we guide, how we inspire at work through questions rather than answers. I think that, that, that was beautiful. Uh, you also mentioned how you had this excess energy and how rather than see it as a, you know, something troublesome or irksome, he, he found a productive channel through which to, you know, have you 
take that energy and do something pretty amazing with it when we see the course of your life. Then we've heard you talk about how he just kept infusing in you the power of the mind, the lack of any glass ceiling, the fact that you can actually approach, you know, um, any, any heights that you, you know, reasonably strive towards. Uh, that is powerful. How also he made you focus more on, you said, what is it, the process rather than the price mm. at the end? Uh, the discipline of not just getting ourselves too elevated, you know, with complacency or ego if we like win, but also not get too beaten up when we lose and just uh, keep focusing on the discipline on the process. Yeah, there's so many incredible insights right there. So thank you. Let me ask you one more question. So he he migrated to the United States from Japan. The exposure I've had in a limited way to Japan, you know, there are some really fascinating things I see in that culture, their aesthetic, their essentialism, you know, striving to create simplicity in everything, you know, this organic kind of connection between humanity and nature mm. in the way things are architected and constructed, for example. Yeah, the mindfulness, you know, the mindfulness with which that culture seeks to live their life and to engage both in the public and private arena with every small act. And those are just four, you know, of, of so many, you know, beautiful qualities there. And um, I, I'm curious, when you think about what you've inherited from your dad or what you've absorbed in your DNA, what, what makes you you, do, do, do you feel identified with, with any any of these kind of like Asian, but in particular, like Japanese qualities? I think that's a great question. So growing up, I didn't really know my identity in terms of my biracial background. You know, being half Japanese, my mother was actually adopted. So her background and ethnicity is a mystery to her until we had the technology to do these, you know, these swab tests to then go and see what kind of DNA heritage that my genetic makeup will, will give me. I think the, the influence from the Japanese culture was apparent, although my father, you know, left that culture at the age of 17 because he didn't like the kind of rigid protocol like environment when it came to academics. That's the that's the primary reason that my father left. He felt like he was studying from one test to prepare for the next test, for the next test. And, and his question, which I thought was actually very mature of my father to say is, what does this have to do with me living life? Like, I don't understand why this test is just preparing me for that test, which prepares me for this. And so he thought that there was more to the world than just that. And at the time, you know, he saw the United States as this incredible opportunity to explore what curiosities he had in his mind. He didn't have to follow this rigid career path that was already laid forth for him. And my grandparents were very much against him moving out of Japan. That was that was completely abrasive. It was against the norm. So my father showed some, I think some, you know, some natural kind of resistance to what that looked like. And he came to this country, but I don't think my father can help in the way that he thinks. Like my father still counts in Japanese in his head, right? Even though he's been in the United States and he's an American citizen, he's been here for longer than he's ever been in Japan and he still speaks fluent Japanese, but he's, he's an American, but he's got this really interesting blend of Eastern and Western influence. And he's kind of molded his own style in the way that he's approached and how that has influenced me as I grow older is I yearn for nature. I'm at my best when I'm in nature, when I'm closest to nature. And while I love the bright lights and the city and the electrification of the New York City, of a Hong Kong, of a London, of a Shanghai, of a Tokyo, I feel the most grounded and in tune with my inner voice and that inner compass. I often, it's very easy for me naturally to become distracted because I have a curiosity of a cat. I, I love to explore and get immersed into different opportunities and businesses and people and cultures and foods. And, and so for me, nature allows me to kind of wipe away all the distractions. 
And to the one thing that I think that the Asian culture, especially the Japanese culture has shown me is that while it may look very shiny over there on the other side of the grass, the reason why it looks so nice, and the reason why that grass on the other side looks so nice is because of where you're actually standing. This is this, this is where you actually should be. And it's not until you go and you leave that and you go to the other side and you're like, hey, my grass is actually really shiny over there. It looks really good. And then you're kind of ping ponging back and forth. And you're like, wait, what, what, am I, what have I been doing for the past six years? I'm just chasing these things that look like they were better. But the main thing that I fundamentally, my true north, that inner voice, that's what makes me happy. That's what makes me fulfilled. And that's what's actually I'm really perhaps really good at. So um, again, that's like a very simplistic view of how that has influenced my life. But it also on the sporting world gave me a tremendous amount of insights because of my father would always pose these interesting questions. And he would ask me, you know, Apollo, you know, I, you know, I know you want to win. I was a hyper competitor, but you know, only concentrating on the outcome is not going to simply allow you to hit that target. And I, and I give this example, right? If you think of someone who's an archer, right? And so in, the, in this beautiful form of archery, uh, which is, you know, highly prized also in the Japanese culture, and you see someone pull the bow back, and when they let go of the bow, that bow is going towards the target. Now, the archer, him or herself, the, fo the sole focus is to hit the target, hit the bullseye. But as soon as they let go, it doesn't matter how much they scream, yell, and shout. The bow's not going to change. It's going to do whatever it can, whether the wind takes it, whether something happened. And so that focus on the process of the preparation, the heart rate, the calmness, the focus, the instantaneous flow of letting go, and then allowing that result to almost you surrender to what that result will be, which takes a lot of confidence and ability. It is so hard as we live in a society where we do not like to accept what the outcomes are. It doesn't matter if we don't have control over them. We we refuse to accept them. And that's that's a strength, but it's also a hindrance and that can really weigh on you. And so this, that that phenomena played out many times in my life in the sport of short track speed skating. So for many of the viewers who have no idea what that sport is, you know, we raced on the inside of a, an Olympic sized hockey rink and there's several skaters that race against each other at the same time. We go 35 to 40 miles an hour, leaning over these impossible angles. Strategy is a big part of this. You can probably run the same race four different times and get four different winners. And the difference in a 40 second race between the person who's first and the person who is fourth, who's off the podium, that difference is that much. So you have to get to a point in your career, all of us did, where you can accept the outcome and to realize that a lot of things perhaps are not within your control. And so that focus on process versus prize was really, really, really important in the world that Short Track gave me. One of the most incredible insights that I carry with me today, and I've been almost 11 years retired now. So, you know, I, I, I find that these interesting insights that both my father gave me, that life has given me, that I learned from tra traveling and talking to the person next to me on the plane, there's these incredible lessons all around us. And until we find ways that we can find that, it's, it's actually quite challenging because, um, you know, it's much easier to only focus on the on the prize and want the prize, um, which like these medals behind me, you can see. But the reality is these medals are just they're, they're just pieces of metal. Um, the story behind them, the four years, the eight years, the 12 years is really where the insights are. And that's where the life lessons are. And those are the things that I take with me the most.
I want to dive deeper a little bit uh, into this uh, process versus prize theme, because I think it's a really powerful one for us to explore. And we haven't actually done it so far in our 20 odd intersections conversations. Just before we go there, you brought up your love for nature. Mm-hmm. I-, I relate to that idea a lot that, you know, one really likes, in a sense, the sizzle and life of like a Hong Kong or New York City. And yet there is this, you know, soulful yearning one has, you know, to be in the lap of nature. I'm curious, one of the exercises I sometimes do with uh, my audiences is a uh, practice of meditation, what I call the inner sanctuary. Phil Jackson used to do something similar with his basketball teams at the Chicago Bulls and the LA Lakers. He used to call it like your safe spot, you know, a place where you can take a little bit of like a mental vacation. So I invite people to kind of like think about like a place in nature that really inspires them. And then just kind of like visualize that they're actually there and start to re-experience that as much as possible in their mind. And so I'm curious, like if I were to invite you to do that, what would be your inner sanctuary? What is that place in nature in a life that is so well-traveled as yours that would be your most favorite? You mean like a specific location? Yeah, yeah. It, it could be that or it could be like there's this generic kind of like feel I have of like mountains or an ocean or something. So either way. You know, I think I think I'm partial to mountains just because I had grown up in the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. So I had seen the Rockies. I had lived in Salt Lake City and the mountains there. And so I'm just very familiar with that. But uh, I love water, mountains, woods. You know, one of the most profound experiences I've ever had was, you know, growing up in a single parent household, not having a lot of money. My father was genius in showing me that nature can be a teacher and a tool that I can experience for free. And so we would go to these areas that were very remote in the Pacific Northwest. And we would just explore and walk and we would talk and we would we would sit and we would uh, my father would would sketch, you know, he would sketch the trees. We would we would it, it was it was a very powerful experience and one that I find to be the most valuable now when I'm actually really facing a ton of kind of hard questions. So there's three places that I love the most, I think, right now. And and by the way, I've traveled all over and I love all of these new places. But the ones that I seem to always go back to are in the Pacific Northwest, there's an area called Mo Clips or Copalis Beach. It's very rugged. It's not what you would think. It's like white sandy beach. Like the, the ocean is very rough. I don't recommend always getting inside of it because it's really cold. But most importantly, it's it's very quiet and there's not a lot of people there. And it, it rains often. So it's very rich and lush with this green. And another place would be that's more dry would be, you know, the Salt Lake City and the mountains up in Park City or Eden, Utah, and then Colorado and Colorado Springs. Um, I spent a lot of time up and down those mountains on my bike and hiking. So those are the places where I've found to just go and walk. Tonight, I'm going to go and I'm actually taking a, a walk through some of the mountains here in California with a friend of mine. And it's a time where I'm able to shut off, turn my phone off connect, be present. And, and I, I always see it as a form of healing. So, you know, when I was younger, I was in all these amazing places and I didn't know because I just didn't know my connection with it. And every year that I grow, I find that that happens to be where I can, I just become integrated back into this world that I feel solidified and I feel like time starts to slow down and, and it's hard, right? Because we live in a, we live in an era where digitization and the acceleration of efficiency and effectiveness in how we work is really important and we thrive on those things. And so 
Also, I noticed that it takes me about three days to truly decompress and not have that conditioning mechanism to reach for my computer, to reach for my phone. Uh, and and um, so, yeah, those are the three places that I find that really help me provide kind of that center and recognizing the true north and also to remind myself not to get too distracted because uh, it's so easy today. I, I really liked um, what you just said about how it takes you three days because, uh, you know, my retreats have been often in ashrams, you know, in, in India or sometimes here in the you know U.S. And uh, I've often found that there's on the one hand a certain draw, but on the other hand, a certain resistance and a restlessness within that um, seems to almost rebel against the fact that you have to kind of leave your work and leave all these, you know, gadgets and everything. Uh, and then you're right, you know, it takes a little bit of time to get into flow. But once one gets into flow in those situations, which usually is more than 24 hours, uh, you never you don't you don't want to leave it. <laughs> you know, you want to just like be there for the for the rest of your life if you could. So um, I think um, I see a little bit of that in the transition you have so consciously made in these cases. Before we close out on the early part of your life, let's get back to that arc of your life. I just want to take this moment to, on behalf of all of us, uh, I know I speak, I'm sure, for my audience just as much as myself. Just like let out, you know, a word of thank you, you know, a very heartfelt thank you to to your father for the very heroic journey that he must have taken all the way from, you know, making that call in Japan to um, be true to himself, to be guided by his inner voice, to celebrate what he liked from that world, but also move on to, you know, his own future and then to raise you in this incredibly thoughtful way so that you today are in so, so many ways a product of him and others like him who've contributed and shaped you. So just a big word of thank you, you know, to him from our side. As we move on, let me just ask you this. Um, like when you started to catalyze some of these capabilities in you to do fast, high speed kind of like, you know, skating, did you feel like you were learning something from the outside or did you feel that you were awakening to something from the inside? You know, I always say that I think sport found me versus me finding sport. I, I think it was, you know, I was athletic as a, as a child, but the, the inner voice or that conversation that I would have introspectively, that, that reflectionary period, uh, that started really early. And I'll give you one particular example of that and why that's been such a big proponent of my life is at the age of 14, and I'm going to accelerate through this story, but at the age of 14, I went from relatively unknown as an athlete in the United States to training with a junior development program for eight months and then actually winning the overall U.S. championships. So what that means is I was now ranked as number one in the United States amongst any age groups, not just as a 14-year-old or 15-year-old. I was actually... I was ranked number one. So technically, I was the captain of the team as we went to go compete at the world championships and abroad at the age of 14. So, you know, I, I couldn't go out like, to have a, to share a drink with, a, with, with our team who was 35 and 37 years old for another seven years. I mean, it was a very awkward situation, technically being the captain, but I, you know, I'm this like young kid who still has braces. And so from that moment in time, which was 1997 until 1998, which was an Olympic year, the year that I was supposed to make the Olympic team in Nagano, Japan, my grandparents were supposed to come because it's not too far from their house. My father would be returning back to Japan to show his parents, hey, I left against your will, but look what I have helped create and curate into this world. So it was this perfect story where this half Japanese American was coming back home to compete in an Olympic Games. And at that Olympic trials in 1998, I finished last, number 16. 
And my father was devastated, not only because of the fact that I didn't make the team, but more so because of how I lived and trained during that year. And I was essentially throwing an opportunity away. And without getting too granular on the details, because I know we have a limited amount of time, um, my father took that as an opportunity and he actually saw a potential negative habitual pattern that I was creating in terms of my process. And it was easy for me at that time to shy away from putting myself completely out there for the world to see, even though I was expected to win. And it was easier for me to just self-sabotage in a way because at least subconsciously I would be able to tell myself, well, I didn't really try 100%. So therefore, of course, I didn't make the team. But if I would have, maybe I, I could have made it. It was much easier to say that versus saying I gave 100%. I gave all that I have and it just wasn't enough. It wasn't my time. That's very hard for us to deal with that radically transparent mirror conversation we can have with ourselves. And so my father was not a proponent of that. He was really adamant around, I don't care how you perform. I don't care how the result adds up. I care about what you do in your preparatory phase. And so he took me from those Olympic trials. We went back to that cabin that I had told you about in the Pacific Northwest that's very remote. There's not many people there. I always joke around and say, if you're part of the witness protection program, this is where you are sent um, because you just don't see many people. And it's a beautiful place. But at the, at the time in December, it rains all day, every day. I'm 15 years old. And my father gave me some very, very tough love. And that tough, that tough love unfolded in the way that, you know, I had been there many times with my father for holiday. Uh, and, and that's where we would spend our, our time and energy. And my father said, you are going to stay here alone without me until you figure it out what it is you'd like to do with your life at the age of 15. And I, you know, that created a, obviously a very abrasive relationship between my, myself and my father. And I had one already being a young teenager and thinking that I was a man of the household and all those things that come with that. But the reality is that my father was trying to show and instill in me. And I think he also felt like he didn't have a choice because anything else he was telling me, I just wasn't listening. I was throwing away this incredible opportunity. And so while I'm there at this place alone, I literally see no other humans for, for days on end. And, you know, I, I'm there and I have food and I have like clothes and I have a journal, but there's no video games. There's no social media. There's no computer. There's no, there's no phone. There's a payphone down the street, but that's it. It's just, I was in my own shell of my brain. And that's when the introspective conversations began. That's when the questions arose internally day and night throughout the middle of the day, on long runs, on long walks, when I walked on the cold beach, when it was raining and I was still going for long jogs. And while there was no parting of the, of the clouds or the sea or some beautiful thunderbolt came down and said, oh, here's the answer. The reality is I came to a conclusion and came to a decision to say, I'm willing to take the chance. I'm willing to go down the path of uncertainty. I'm willing to be uncomfortable in this pursuit to see, do I have what it takes to be a part of the Olympic team? Do I have, and I am going to make that choice and I'm going to make that commitment, not only for my father, but to myself. And that was really hard to do. And that was the moment also in which something else clicked and changed within me as a young teenager. And that was my first introduction into the world of how powerful this actually really is. And as we navigate through the human life experience, um, most of the trauma, most of the pain, most of the desire and want and fear, it's all created within this same little realm, which is in here. 
And that began this process down a very exploratory phase of sports psychology and Eastern medicine and Eastern philosophy, and just dove much, much deeper into the realm of the, I would call it the psychological aspect and the human behavior aspect and the mental visualization and the breathing that I couldn't possibly imagine. So nature gave me that very early. It gave me answers not in the way that we, I think we would normally think, but it gave me answers to my own calling. You know, we call that inner sanctuary, the inner sanctum between our two ears, between the self, between our spirit. And I, I just, you know, the power of belief and hope is so visceral. It's, it's science can't, we can't measure it, right? We do things that go against the laws, it seems, of physics at times. And I just think that maybe perhaps we haven't found a way to measure these things yet. And I'm sure at some point we will. And maybe it's got something to do with this electricity and, and who knows what those elements are. But I've experienced them. I know when all of the odds have been stacked against me, I have risen above what we normally thought was physically possible. I've skated times and done passes and performed in training and in competition in ways that I've never explored before when everyone else would essentially count me out. So I, I think that this is the testament to what we can do. There's no guaranteed outcome here, but nature, my father, that upbringing and those elements were just incredibly powerful tools to remind not only ourselves but I think the world of what's possible and to, con to continuously pursue that question, both internally and externally. Yeah. It's taking us to another very powerful space, the space of beliefs, you know, and the power of the mind over the material world. So let's maybe, if you like, dive into one more question around that topic. And if this is not as much something that you've given a thought to, that's okay. There are so many things for us to talk about, but I'm just going to experiment with a certain idea with you. I'm, I'm very invested and drawn to this um, arena as well, as you know, you know, the arena of beliefs and kind of like changing ourselves by changing our blueprints from within. In fact, uh, Gandhi, you know, he said it beautifully, you know, once he said, your beliefs become your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you've heard this, your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values. And your values become your destiny. So beautiful little kind of like small steps to linking mm -hmm. beliefs to destiny. One of the things, as you were talking about how science has yet to maybe fully figure out how to measure it. Science today is definitely taking steps to recognizing the importance of one kind of belief versus another that then affects your performance and therefore outcomes. And I'm sure, you know, you're exposed to some of these ideas like the growth mindset, for example. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I find that is still remiss in science connected to your observation about the lack of ways to measure at the present moment is the, the depth of a belief that you have. How strong is that belief? Because I've certainly seen it both in myself and in others that sometimes we buy into a certain belief in our very sort of reclusive, reflective moments that, yes, this is kind of like the person I want to be. This is the belief I really believe in. But when push comes to shove and we're in a high pressure zone, we resort back to the wiring patterns of a brain that is still addicted to the old belief. And we kind of start engaging in behaviors contradictory with the aspirational belief that we really want to <laughs> really kind of like start to cultivate. So that has led me to a certain hypothesis that actually it's not just to buy into a belief. It's not just adequate to buy into belief. We have to really deeply embed that belief into, into our psyche and embody that belief in everything we do. What, what are your thoughts on this idea? I think that's beautifully said. I mean, you, you articulated that in ways that I think many of us can relate to. We all know, what I call it self-sabotage or perhaps getting in our own way. And we do it often. 
that's that's why human change and human transformation is so hard to do is because we have we've got hardwiring conditioning we've got millions of years encoded into our dna of responding and reacting a certain way when something happens whether it's fight or flight whether it's fear something in some capacity relates back to that and when we have been living as an experience on this planet for let's call it 10 years doing something a certain way and then finding out later that that is not the most effective or efficient or maybe will will suit the outcome that we need changing that's really hard and it usually from my experience has always resulted either in someone hitting rock bottom and having that shock be so visceral and so powerful that they now no longer will accept what they were doing before as a standardized uh, baseline of how they perform or what they do whether it's reaching for a particular food, whether it's doing a habit, whenever someone talks to you, maybe you're hyper defensive, whatever those things are, these are conditioning mechanisms that unless you are reminded constantly to perhaps maybe take a beat, take a second, remind yourself of what the original goal and intention was, it's easy to revert back. It's very easy. And the reason why is because what we know, and we like to go towards things that we understand, things that we find and identify as being comfortable, and as having normalcy. That's what makes us feel like we've got this sense of control. And it's when we stretch outside of that zone and we get into, you know, I call it the yellow zone. Green zone is exactly what I just said. It's going throughout your day, doing the routine, doing the things that you know, that you know, like the back of your hand. And there's nothing wrong with having routine. That's that's important. But I do think for growth and for change and for transformation to occur, there needs to be some levels of resistance. And it's just like training, right? Like the calluses that I have on my hand are the perfect example. This is because my hand has been training to build up the resistance and your mind is the same. Your mind has to become callous. The only way to create that is through a series of repetitions and mechanisms of repetition so that you can break the existing conditioning because you are trying to change something within a one week period when you've got 10 or 20, sometimes 30 plus years of history doing. Of course, it's going to take some time. It's not supposed to be easy. That's why you did it before for so many years. And so for some of us who have been able to transform from self 1.0 and evolve towards a self 2.0, it's not without this back and forth. You try, you fail, you try, you fail. And it's through that repetition, I believe that's really important. And first identifying and recognizing, you know, looking in the mirror, this is kind of my, my own personal process is having the open conversation where being vulnerable and saying like, look, I'm not perfect. I make lots of mistakes. You are complicit in your own actions and in your own faith failures. Absolutely. You are complicit in those. Some of them maybe perhaps are out of your control, but you have a role in some capacity. We, we know, Apollo, that you are not operating at 100% full potential. That's, that's a part of the human experience. The beautiful thing is you don't have to become relegated to what you were. You don't have to say, I am what I am and I'll never change and I'll never progress and I'll never do these things. That, that's, that's a decision for you to make. And then now the next step is first identifying and then accepting and being okay with that. And then saying, now I will make the step forward to begin this transformation, to begin those steps towards improvement, towards pushing the envelope and not going so um, abrasive that you're now in the red zone. You can no longer accept any inf more information and everything is happening too fast and it's just not working. But going into the yellow zone and embracing the challenge, embracing the grit, embracing the difficulty and the opportunity that lies at the end of this tunnel. That is exactly what you said. We go from 
from. We want to make this change and we will always be pulled back to self 1.0 because that's what's comfortable. That's what gives us warmth and that's what's familiar. And we all know what that feels like, right? Whether you had micro trauma as, as a kid and someone made fun of you, that didn't feel good, right? Kids can be brutal. Well, I, or you were singing and people told you you are terrible at singing. Well, then maybe perhaps that had done something to you to now later on in your life, you react and respond in a certain particular way. So, you know, recognizing these things, accepting them as they are, knowing that this existence and this experience is highly flawed, but it's also perfectly flawed in the same way. And the you know, sooner that you can recognize the opportunities and the challenges that are that are in front of you, the faster you can accelerate your process towards moving towards that change. Uh, and I, and, and I do those things on a daily basis. I mean, I still, I utilize that in terms of the way we, we performed on the ice as athletes, um, in terms of the entrepreneurship activities that we have in terms of helping and seeking insights from others, and then just reaching out to other humans across this country and across this planet of, Hey, you've got this reservoir of untapped potential within you. And you don't even know it. You don't even know the power you have as the gift of life that has been given to you. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. It's time to stop pointing and start holding up the mirror, looking inward at first, seeing who you are today uh, and accepting that person. doesn't matter. It's all good. Like this is this life and experience is a gift. And so what you do with that is really up to you. Folks, I, I think you're uh, all getting to see see the passion right behind um, your your journey. See the deep inner work that you've done, you know, in getting to where you are. In some ways, if I had to like put an identity to you, I don't know, I might call you like brain sculptor, <laughs> you know, somebody <laughs> who's uh, really invested in figuring out like how to how to make the brain just um, grow from point A to point B in whichever direction you want to take it. So beautiful uh, and helping others do that, you know, as well. We want to turn to that like more recent chapters in your career uh, very soon. Uh, we'll get there in just a minute. Uh, let me just kind of make a couple of um, remarks from, you know, what our audience is sharing. So. So Gareth is referring back to the, um, you know, the process over price kind of focus uh, as something he's connecting with another source of, um, you know, Eastern wisdom, uh, which is something that I personally also gained so much from, you know, one of India's most sacred scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita. And he's saying this, it's a similar principle there where Krishna, who's, you know, this great prophet is telling Arjuna, who's at that point his student, but also a very exalted student. You know, he's telling him like, you know, give up the attachment to outcomes. You have the right to work, but never to the fruit of the work. You know, I see that in other great faith traditions as well. You know, I've heard that from some of my friends in the Christian community as well. And I mean, I think, you know, it's just um, it's interesting when you see some some of these um, eternal truths, you know, start to get rediscovered right in our own moments of growing up and the lessons we're learning from our parents and others. So that's beautiful. There is a question here from um, my my colleague uh, at Mentora and dear friend. Raghu. Raghu is, um, uh, by the way, has had a storied career in the corporate world. He was the CHRO of, um, you know, one of the big conglomerates, GE, experienced, you know, that company through periods of tremendous growth, but also some recent turmoil and turbulence that they've gone through. So coming from all that background, he's got this question for you. What is, you know, what's your biggest regret? You know, when you when you think about like sort of all that you had to give up, in order to be really dedicated to your passion and calling, is there any any kind of regret that you've had along the way? Look, I, I think the reality is, and I wrote a book called Zero Regrets, uh, Be Greater Than Yesterday. Uh, I, I think that's an excellent question. You know, I, I've always tried to pursue a life of zero regrets, knowing that that is probably impossible. I have had many regrets. I've had many mistakes, many shortcomings, and many failures, personally, professionally. And I think the number one thing that I probably 
I don't know if I regret, but if I could go back in hindsight 2020 and make a change would be in the way that I interacted with the world and my teammates for about 10 years. So what I mean by that, and I'll explain a little bit more in terms of context and texture, there were many years where I was so I was just so disciplined and committed in the path to where nothing else in the world mattered to me. And there's a beauty in that. And and there's also on the other side in the world of balance, it can actually be toxic, right? Where you are tied to the outcome, but you're also tied so religiously to what you're doing. And it it it's a beautiful way to hone in this laser-like focus, but it also limits your view of the world because you are less open to adaptation in other areas of your life. And so for 15 years of my life, I did not care, nor did I want to explore other facets of my personality or show both to my teammates and the world the vulnerabilities and the passions that I actually really had for the people that I raced against. Because I wore this poker face, because I because I never wanted to seem like I was weak, I wanted to be indestructible, I never wanted to be tired, and I brought a level of intensity out of a fear for failure, mainly, that never relate that never allowed me to breathe and enjoy. Enjoy the fact that I had just won a World Cup medal. Enjoy the fact that I had just won a World Championships or I had just skated an amazing practice today. It was always this, I have to do more. I need to do more. There is more to do. Someone else on the other side of the world is working harder that is better genetically designed for the sport than I. I'm so far behind. And so for the longest times, these, these medals behind me that are, that are laid out, these were in a sock drawer until actually February of this year. They were in a sock drawer my whole life. And it's not like I have them in some incredible display case or I, I, I show them around or carry with them with me when I travel. But, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, man, like, Paul, you've had some pretty awesome experiences and you shouldn't shy away from them. You don't always have to think of yourself as the underdog. You don't always have to operate as if there's this hamster in the cage and you just need to keep running and running. Because you'll do that and 10 years will fly by and you'll be like, man, you'll look back and say, wow, that was, that was an incredible experience. And it was necessary and it was a part of those chapters of my life. So back to your question, you know, I, I, look, I, I think that regret is a word that to me, regret is something that you would change. I'm not sure that I would actually change anything. And, and look, I've, I, I, you know, without getting too much into detail, I've had some, some devastation in my life. I've had real pain, real loss, real stress where I've thought, I, I'm not going to make it. This is it. I, I was only on earth for the Olympic period. And that's it. I, I, I was, I'm not supposed to be here for anything else. So maybe I've thrown everything away, whatever that is. Um, but then there's another inner voice inside, I think, that says, um, you know, these little sticky notes like I have on my computer here. Um, you know, don't think that you are, but know that you are. Seek purpose. Seek something greater than yourself. And I, I, while I have many things that I can go back and maybe perhaps change, I would maybe perhaps um, improve upon other businesses or opportunities I perhaps would not have explored and explored others. It's made me today so incredibly grateful and also hungry at the same time to continue. So I think regret is is something that is a painful conversation to have with ourselves because all of us have huge opportunities missed, big mistakes made, trauma, pain, anger, rage, sadness, fears. These, to me, they seem to be really similar across the world.
doesn't matter if you are a billionaire. It doesn't matter if you, you know, live in a village 20 miles from the nearest running water. Our human experiences are actually much closer than we realize. It's just when you, you know, first world, third world problem, you know, I, I think the, the existence is in how your perceptions of this world are. And while I still continue to play the man-made game, and that game is one that is governed still a lot by the paper finance and the money that we live in. Um, I choose to play that game, and I also choose to turn that game off at times. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just grateful. I, I, I love that question of regret. I often ask myself, you know, my fiance now, I tell her all the time, but like, oh, you know, like tell her about this missed opportunity and that one. And she kind of chuckles and laughs. And she's like, the one thing that she always tells me, she's like, you've lived like a really incredible, you've had a, a lot of experiences. And that's the takeaway is like, I, I've had, whether I did that investment or this opportunity, or I tried that didn't work, I'm still here. And I'm still, I'm still getting after it in some capacity. I'm still eager to learn. I'm still naturally curious. I'm still grateful. And I still have this inner fire to grow personally as an individual, to know that I'm imperfect and I can continuously move. So regret, I have many. Would I change them? Probably not. Probably. <laughs> so, you know, said in such a beautiful and heartfelt way, that, that is, uh, that gives a lot of opportunity for reflection to all of us um, about our own life journeys and our own regrets. So thank you, uh, Paulo. Um, folks, uh, I'm recognizing that uh, time you know, is fleeting uh, when we have so much richness in um, getting Apollo's story unfold in front of us. So I want to recommend that you consider reading one or more of his books to dive deeper into some of these ideas and to also broaden your connect with him around things that are on your mind that we haven't fully had the opportunity to uncover here because I'm recognizing there is actually a wealth of really interesting questions coming up here and yet we have only so much time and there is one area you know that relates to your your new book that is you know coming out on hard pivot that I, I want to kind of like move into for these last few minutes just before we do that though I want to just kind of highlight a couple of comments that are coming out here which I think are beautiful so there is this one Dana is talking about my dad was a three-time Olympic athlete started his own accounting firm at the same time my grandfather and his brother were also Olympic athletes all used nature to train with you know sea and and the beach so that is beautiful thank you for sharing that and uh, it continues my dad competed in sailing my grandfather and great uncle competed in swimming all had to do with natural elements yeah that's so beautiful thank you for that dana uh julie thank you for this insightful program thank you apollo for sharing my sister and i are listening together from new york city and send you blessings because you're our favorite <laughs> olympian of all times thank you julie that's nice of you yeah, that is, uh, that is so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. And then um, Gareth is saying, I'm listening here with my sons. They're eight and 10. Thank you for your amazing example. Very, very grateful. So uh, let me turn to another question. This is from another dear friend, Mike Milfakis, who's uh, also very deeply steeped in the world of business. He heads executive education at uh, the Wharton School at UPenn. And uh, I understand you yourself uh, you know, are an alumnus of one of these uh, programs. Is it at UPenn? Broadly, or was it actually at Wharton? It was at Wharton. It was a, a leadership-focused uh, program for about five weeks that I did last year. Uh, hi, Mike. It, it was an amazing experience, rich in incredible history of not only the professors who gave so much of their passion to that program. Sorry, I'm speaking about this this um, executive program that I did at the end of last year, and uh, I, you know, I think it's it, it was it's all about what you put in is what you get out of some of those things. And you know, we had 22 different 
ex uh, we had 30, 38 total executives from 22 different countries. And it was just, it was amazing to hear many of them were in the same sectors of business, but it was just awesome to hear the different cultures, the different challenges. And then you combine this like hyper accelerated learning process of thinking and then doing and experimenting teamwork and leadership. And it was, it was phenomenal. I really, really enjoyed it. That's awesome to hear. I want to make an observation, Apollo, about you. I have uh, taken an interest in studying, you know, the arcs of, um, you know, the lives of, you know, a whole range of different kinds of like great achievers, you know, great performers world champions. One of the things that um, we uncover in that work is the risk they face when they've like come to the peak, right, of like performance at the world stage is that they then assume that they are the chosen one, you know, that they are really in some way special and specially gifted and start to propound, you know, kind of like wisdom and ideas and advice and counsel to others on a whole range of things. You know, that actually may lie beyond their expertise because they've sculpted their brain to be really good at chess mm -hmm. or to be really good at winning a Nobel Prize in physics. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean necessarily that they'll know as much about society or economics or, you know, you know, et cetera. So the thing I want to observe about you is that, which is one thing that drew me to invite you to this program, which I'm honored, you know, that you, you know, took it, took it on, right? Is that you seem to be constantly reinventing yourself. Going back to Mike's, uh, you know, question, you know, as a lifelong learner, how do you keep up with this practice of continuous learning? Mm -hmm. And right there, you yourself just talked about this Wharton program that you invested in taking. You invested five weeks of your life in it. You didn't have to. You could have just said, like, here are my gold, silver, and bronze medals. You know, let me just show up and bedazzle, you know, the audience, et cetera, which you've done as well. But this commitment and this humility to recognize that you're constantly broadening your horizons and perhaps then through that, earning the right to reinvent yourself in new ways and be of service to the world in ways beyond the incredible athletic, you know, excellence that you've achieved. Yeah, the the lifelong learning is, you know, originally it stemmed when I retired, I, I call it my first great divorce, right? As I'm writing the new book called Hard Pivot, um, a pivot is uh, in speed skating is when you're in the corner and you have to basically do a complete 180 on one leg and go the opposite direction. Very much like what a lot of people are facing today with all the challenges that we have. Um, we're all pivoting and we're all adapting and we are all reinventing in some capacity, whether it's personal, professionally, um, it is, it is really, it's required and change is constant. So when I retired in 2010, you know, 10 and a half years ago, um, I knew right away that I needed to find other facets of my personality and passions that I was hopefully going to seek and find as exciting and as powerful as the Olympic experience. And I was determined to find it. And in, it was that great divorce was essentially, I had my first true love, um, which was sport. And sport had taught me, it had nurtured me, it had carried me, it had shown me to be strong, it had shown me to choose strength over weakness, to choose discipline over inconsistency. It chose, it allowed me to choose all these things and it taught me so much. And then like that, um, it had told me that, you know, I was going to be done and it had a younger suitor, one that was more attractive, better marketed, um, greater possibilities of sponsorship, greater story, genetically designed to go faster than I could ever possibly imagine. And there was nothing that I could do to ever come back to that first true love. And most Olympic athletes go through that process and it's really visceral and it's, it's almost like this violent breakup that you have. And I hit the ground running because I was really afraid of not being able to find something that I was as passionate about like I was in sport, but then also 
like the world had expected me to succeed at the same level of performance in the world of business or whatever career that I was going in the same way, which was not really true. It was just in my own head that the world thought that. And I was just setting these kind of, you know, these, these, my own personal expectations and goals, but I had not put in any of the work. You know, I spent 15 years of my life crafting to do one sole particular thing. And then overnight now I want to be the best in something else that I've got no experience in. And so the lesson there was I needed to have full immersion. I, I actually was really behind in many areas of my life. And while I had been advanced in some areas, far beyond many people in their 50s and 60s because of what the sport and what the life lessons and insights gave me, there was some areas where I was still a 15-year-old. I had not actually matured at all. And the only way for me to, to accelerate that process was to go and do. And that's exactly what I did. I just started saying yes to a lot of things. I traveled like a maniac. I was surrounding myself with people from different areas of the world, different businesses and opportunities and cultures and food. And these experiences were so important. And that's where that lifelong learning and desire came from was that I, I lived in a bubble that I thought was the most important in the world. Egotistically speaking, I actually thought, this is so funny. I actually thought everyone watched the Olympics when I was skating. I really believe that. I was like, what do you mean you don't watch the Olympics? That's, that, seems, that seems odd. And they're like, oh, yeah. No, I've got a lot of other things that are actually a lot more important. And I also didn't know all of the things this world has, both in terms of its darkness and in terms of its light. I just was, I, I, I had a narrow view. And it wasn't until I started traveling that I had both the perspective on wealth, on poverty, on having on have on on not having and then also saw the opportunities around the world that existed and the way that people think the way that people eat and share and the commonality amongst everyone amongst all borders and it, it, it that lifelong learning was just inspiring to me and then i you know i i only studied athletes for so long and some philosophers and now i was studying just people i was just interested in the human behavior i was interested in why why does this guy who is seemingly on the outside is so incredibly successful in business it looks like a serial entrepreneur is a master of reinvention why does he or she continuously keep getting up and going to work like I would be done. What, what is that? And I was like, oh, they're not, it's not work. This is a part of what they desire. This is actually, this is what makes them happy. They like to play the game. And that playing of the game is a part of their process. That's where they, they find inspiration and motivation and fire. And so I too love to learn and I love, you know, I love going to conferences. I, I, I obviously love speaking and I love spending time with people and I love seeing the flicker of light go on in someone's head or seeing the soul come alive, so to speak, because I have been there. I have been in a dark place. And then I've also seen some light, I've seen the flicker that turns into a flame, which turns into this man or woman on fire. And so my life, you know, all these books here, and I've got many more over, over there. I, I just, I just find it fascinating. People have an, an innate ability to articulate ways that I struggle with sometimes on pen and paper. And my, my book that I'm writing now, Hard Pivot, is really centered on reinvention and the struggles associated because of the human behavior conditioning that we all have. And to, to find this similarity, commonality amongst those who somehow figured out they are naturally curious. Even when they are an expert in their field, they, they, they just want to learn more. It's not because of just wanting to consume, to consume and just be this consuming monster, but it's because they actually naturally are curious. There seems to be a commonality there amongst those who've had this ability to absorb information, retain it, and then utilize it and wield it as the tool that it is. 
And like a knife, it can carve the most beautiful of sculptures and it also can stab yourself. So again, I, I, I am no expert. I am absolutely definitely not a guru. I'm just, I'm a guy who's had an incredible life experience in sport and in, in traveling the world and entrepreneurship. And I, I just love to learn and I love to grow. And I just think that, you know, when 10 doors close, one of these has got to be open, you know? So that's just, that's kind of how I live my life. And, uh, and I, I'm just grateful for, to continue, to continue learning. And I, I by the way, I learn all the time. Like I, I learn from people that normally, it's not like they're just like a, a business um, tycoon in, in Hong Kong that I'm learning from. It, it can be, be just a friend who's sharing his or her experiences. It can be, you know, someone who I've known for a long time where we're having a deeper conversation. They reveal something to me. And then that happens to be some like really powerful insight that I'm like, wow, like that was profound. Like I need to write that down. So man, life is life is what you make of it. And it's also the perception of those things can be greatly beneficial to um, how you look at the world. I'm rather than just express anything from my side, let me use this moment to again do a just a review of some of the comments that are coming in and how you're stirring our, our community here. So <laughs> Laura's saying, Yes, you rock. I'd love to hear a wise young soul share. That's beautiful, Laura. Thank you for sharing that. You know, you are doing great, uh, Apollo. Keep keep inspiring and motivating. What a what a beautiful message, not just about what you have done, but what's coming ahead in front. Natasha saying, thank you for sharing your incredible life story. I know we're, you know, at time. And so, you know, Bia is talking about how, you know, you've shared such beautiful insights with us today. Thank you so much. What I'm going to do is just ask you two more questions to bring us to closure. If, you, if we have your permission, Apollo. Yeah, of course. Okay. And first of all, my apologies. I know I was like pronouncing your name Apollo until I heard you, you know, say it. And then I was like, oh my God, it should be Apollo, not, not, not Apollo. But the reason, you know, if I can ask for some understanding from you there is because we have a pet dog and his name is Polo, <laughs> you know, and I think <laughs> I've like connected with you with someone who's incredibly dear to my family, <laughs> incredibly dear to my family. Okay. So um, I was like really a wreck when it came to sports, when I was growing up and athletics, I was um, very aspirational and intrigued about cricket, which was like the big sport in India, but uh, never really came to a place where I could, you know, aspire for anything meaningful there. So meeting you is kind of like giving me a little bit of like this like heady feeling of being in the presence of someone that uh, has lived out a dream that I once like had little just kind of stirred within me but I knew was like so far out of reach so what I'd love to see is if you're open to it if that is one of your you know Olympics medals that you know that that set that we see behind you if you could just like bring it up and just show it to us on the screen any one of them maybe sure. your favorite memory that would be awesome and I will, I will live vicariously through you. So, you know, most people ask me, Atendra, like, what is your favorite Olympic medal? And most expect me to grab one of the gold medals. Can you and lift that a little more? Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so oh. actually, this is, this is my first medal I had ever won. And this is from the Salt Lake City 2002 Olympic Games. And you can see there it says, light the fire within. Uh, the reason why this medal is so powerful and important to me, and I know that we're running low on time, so I'll try to make this story really short. September 11th, 2001, uh, attacks on the World Trade Center and in the East Coast, in the Pentagon. I was supposed to go to practice that day, and we didn't, obviously. Six months later, the Olympic Games happened in Salt Lake City. It was the first major event in this country that there was that many people around. 
And so many people, not just Americans, many people around the world were really uncertain. They were on edge. People didn't want to travel. They, they didn't feel safe. They were uncertain of what was happening in the economic climate. And people felt like we, we weren't living that traditional American dream that everyone thought. And as we walked into the opening ceremonies and I saw the special forces with their night vision goggles standing on top of the rooftops, uh, waving to us as we were walking in. And as I was in the opening ceremonies and saw them bring in the American flag into the arena that was flown in New York, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. And you know, it was a time in which our country was brought to its knees. It was humbled. It was shown as to be vulnerable. It was shown to be imperfect. And it was shown to also be decisive, you know, very decisive, right? D divisive, excuse me. Um, a lot of polarizing opinions and values. And the thing that sport somehow changed was this like cheering for Team USA. And not like to beat everyone else, but really to cheer for a team collectively, unifying. And I was 19 years old at the time. I didn't really, really truly understand the, the power that this held. And in my first final in that thousand meters, the one which I, you know, I had won this medal, I was supposed to win. I was the favorite. I was the top guy. And I was in the lead with two and a half laps to go. I was in the lead with one and a half laps to go. I was in the lead with a half lap to go, four seconds remaining in the race. And I was in the lead with a quarter of a lap remaining, three, two and a half seconds remaining in the race. I was in the lead. I could see the finish line. I thought I was going to win gold. And at the snap of a finger, I was knocked down. And an athlete had fallen into the side of me, and I had fallen down. We had taken out the Canadian behind us. A Chinese athlete had fallen down on the corner before. So four athletes had fallen into and crashed into the pads. I ended up stabbing myself in my own leg. And I scrambled to my feet. I see the guy who was a half lap behind this Australian skater cross the finish line, win gold. And I threw my skates across the finish line. I didn't even know what place I actually got. Confused, I get off the ice, I rip my racing suit down, I notice there's a hole in my leg because I had fallen and basically stabbed my own leg. And my natural first response was like, I was supposed to win that race. That was my gold. That was taken from me. That's not fair. That race should be rerun. There was a lot of things here that I'm not okay with. I was pissed. I was angry. And then in walks my physio, the guy who's gonna essentially stitch my leg, and he's got this like twinkle in his eye. And he looks at me and he's like, that was the most incredible race I've ever seen in my life. That was crazy. That was amazing. I was like, but I, you know, I, I, I didn't win. He's like, what? No, man, that, that was, that was, a, did you hear? Did you feel it? Did you feel the electricity out there? We've never had that since September 11, 2001. And as I go and get stitched and I walk out to the, to the award ceremony, I get up out of the wheelchair and I walk onto the podium. And right before I get out there, a reporter sticks a microphone in my face and says, what does it feel like to have lost the gold medal? I, and I, I, you know, I said something along the lines of, I didn't lose the gold, I won the silver. And I go and I put my arms up as I stand on the podium and I celebrate and people are cheering. And reflecting on that, we, that, that medal was reflective of the state that we were in, I think, as a country. And the fact that you think that you are going to win, you think that you are number one, and you think that you are deserving of a very particular result that you feel is yours and no one else's. And then something happens that is out of your control, or maybe you were complicit a little bit in that outcome, and you are knocked on your butt, and you fall down, and you crash, and maybe even hurt yourself. And your true character and built is what happens next. Very easy to stay down. 
very easy to not continue on, even when it seems like everything was not going your way. And if you don't get first, then I don't want the result at all. And we scramble to our feet and we finish. We continue on. We continue to carry that struggle further. And that representation of what that race was, was the first real life lesson that became a part of my soul. And I'm retired almost you know, this is 18 years ago, 18 and a half years ago, that first race happened. That story and that race and that lesson I carry with me today in everything that I do, that when I don't get the result that I wanted, when something happens, when I perhaps you know fail and I'm knocked down, I remember that it is only a failure if I stay down. It is only a failure if I accept to end it, to stop it, to not continue on. And there's nothing wrong with accepting a result. I had to accept that silver. I think it's more in line with what we do moving forward and to continuously keep growing and keep getting back up. And now I'm incredibly grateful for the color of that metal, and I would never change it to gold. So hopefully that provides some context and some story for each and every single one of you who are potentially listening to this in your own lives as we go through the ups and downs of what the life experience has and to realize and recognize that this is a part of these chapters. Right? You may have the pen in your hand as you write and manifest what you believe that you want and what you believe that you deserve. The reality is you probably won't get every single thing that's there, but you will be able to get the opportunity to react and respond in ways that perhaps will greatly enrich your life in terms of fulfillment, happiness, and growth. And I seek that on a daily basis, not perfect in any means. I make mistakes daily, but you know, through the work atendra of what you do, uh, not only for large-scale organizations and companies and leaders, but also for people. And, and to recognize the human experience can still be molded in a way that will make you smile. And, and that's, that to me is, is life. That is so beautiful. Um, let us um, let us seek to then um, give you the last word here. And I want to invite you maybe in like a minute or so, 90 seconds, whatever is appropriate. But uh, given given that I, I don't want to, again, you know, extend your time here even that much more than the graciousness you've already shown. And that was such a beautiful and instructive story. Um, there is a number of comments here from, from folks about, you know, uh, the, the amazing nature of the story after 9-11, how people were just so unified. And, you know, I'm sure some of us are like yearning for that, you know, today as well. So there's so many lessons in that even for now and for today. So, you know, final word from you, looking, looking ahead in your life, what is your big dream? I'm actually living my dream. Uh, it, it took me many years to recenter and refocus and recalibrate what I deem to be my, uh, it, not my, but a purpose in life to help other people see the inner power that they actually have and to make the shifts and make the reinvention and make the transformation and adaptation in any environment and situation to make that choice to do so. So that's what I'm doing now through this book, through this digital program that we're creating, through all the speaking and the podcasting that, that we do together. These are things that I believe are typically thought about from the corporate environment in the old world as the soft skills in your business. And I'm a big, argue, I argue heavy. I say, no, 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 these are the hard skills. These are the fundamental things that you need in your life, in the workspace and at home and everything else that you do. And the sooner that we can start teaching that in the academic field earlier in junior high school, in elementary school, in preschool, in high school, in 
in university, the greater that we have a richness and openness and an adaptability in how we approach problems, how we approach results, how we respond and react to the everyday interactions we have moving forward. And it's going to take a lot of repetition. It is going to take a lot of time and energy and commitment from millions and millions of people. That's what I yearn for. That is my dream. My dream is to feel and touch and see and hear the sense of camaraderie, the sense of unification and solidarity, the sense of we come from all over the world in different ethnic and cultural, beautiful backgrounds. But all of us, we're on this floating rock, floating through space. Like we are all on this floating rock. Like we are on an island, right? Floating through, th floating through life. And don't ever forget that. Don't forget that these borders are so built up in a way that you look like an alien over there and I'm an alien over here. We share so much in common. It's beyond our wildest dreams. And while we've got our own unique attributes and strengths, that's what makes the culture so beautiful and rich and the depthness and history, right? The fact that we've gone through beautiful times and really dark times. And this is another test. This is another opportunity for us as people to tap into that reservoir of potential that exists. And the sooner we do that, man, we, we will progress and we will go far beyond our wildest expectations and even dreams. So I'm living the dream thing that I find the most important to Tendra is conversations like these reinforce the importance, um, I think, of me focusing on what it is that I do and helping people to have and live a pursuing life of zero regrets, knowing that they're, they're going to have many, but every day is a new chance at trying to tackle that goal. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, Paulo, for um, the spirit you brought, the wisdom you brought, the lived truths and experiences you brought to our community today. I know we feel deeply enriched and honored. And I think, folks, for all of us, let's uh, try to express our gratitude to Apollo by deeply committing to some one thing that we're going to take away from today and start acting out more practically in our life. Perhaps, you know, Apollo has affirmed something you've already known. Perhaps you, you know, pursued here and there, but you can make more consistent. Perhaps he's given you some deeper insight about something or a flash of new thinking so that you can make, in fact, a hard pivot in a direction that could be of you know, tremendous significance for you and your community. Uh, you know, thank you for sharing your wealth with us. I want to close then with this quote from Rumi, who's uh, this, this Sufi mystic that um, I really admire for, for his thoughts and his heart. Uh, and, he, and, and, and I think this quote for me is a way to just seek to capture in a few words the kind of energy that I'm, I'm feeling from you, you know, as you've started with your own personal journey, but then you've expanded it to how you're seeking to be of such beautiful service to the world. And so he said, he, he had a definition for love. You know, he said, love is the bridge between you and everything. And I think that's how I feel about um, what you're um, really nurturing and expressing, Apollo. So all the best to you. I know I'm looking very much forward to staying in touch with you and celebrating and observing the path that you take forward. For all our guests, um, I want to alert you to the fact that Apollo's got this third book coming out and he's got a digital class as well through which you can access his ideas and thoughts and training and teaching and techniques in a much more tangible and more thorough form as well, which I'm excited about. So uh, thank you again, Apollo. You've really uh, given us a very, very special Thursday today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Tendra. Take care, everyone. We'll see you soon. 